Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, CEO and founder of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I am delighted to be at the 2022 International Leadership Association Conference in Washington, D.C. with our esteemed guest, Ira Chaliff and Neil Grunberg. Ira is an author and innovative thinker on the beneficial use of power between those who are leading and those who are following in given situations. And Neil is the professor of military and emergency medicine at the Uniformed Services University. Let's jump into the idea of courageous followership and what does that mean in times of uncertainty and chaos? Well, first of all, I like that you have characterized the relationship of the leader as one with their precious followers. I would like to suggest the complementary facet of that, which is that followers view their leaders as precious. Too often there's cynicism about their leaders. It's kind of a cultural thing to gripe about your leaders. It's not very mature. Yes, it lets off steam, but it doesn't actually contribute to the teamwork and the ethos that ideally we would have in the relationship. So Courageous Followership, the subtitle of my book, is standing up to and for our leaders. And those have to go together. If you just stand up to your leader, you're going to be marginalized and should be marginalized. If you only stand up for your leader, well, that's better, but you're not serving your leader well when they need to be told that they have a blind spot or there's something that they've concluded that really should be rethought before it's acted on. Beautiful. Thank you. And Neil, can you give us a little bit about your work in leadership and followership as well? Thank you, Maureen, and thank you for having me here, particularly with Ira Chaloff. As I and my colleagues have studied leadership and team building, we recognize that we must really understand how to embrace that relationship among all those members. My focus is on healthcare leadership, and as we say, healthcare is a team sport. So the leaders, followers, the movement of leadership roles is important. We've looked at the literature and been particularly impressed with what I consider three giants in the field of followership, Ira Chaloff, Robert Kelly, and Barbara Kellerman. From those, we've extracted certain concepts. From Kelly and Kellerman, we like the one dimension they consider in followership about whether the follower is engaged or not. We've added another dimension, an orthogonal dimension, which picks up on what Ira was just saying. To what extent is the follower aligned or not with the leader's vision, and how do they affect each other? The third dimension that we've added, we drew from the work of Heifetz, whose focus on adaptive leadership we've changed as well, where Heifetz talks about adaptation and after stressors or situations coming back to a baseline, which is essentially what's called homeostatic theory. We've applied what's called allostatic theory more of the immune system rather than the cardiovascular system, that with experience one becomes stronger and responds. We've built all of this, though, into our model of what we now call a leader-follower framework. Again, the credit goes to these three scholars who I referred to. Years ago, we were focusing on a leader framework, character, competence, context, communication across four psychosocial levels, but we realized that the follower must be developed as well. The other point that we've come to recently think about is if there's any image that we believe captures really the essence of what Ira and others have written about is think of leader and follower like yin-yang. And I talk about the yin-yang because you need the gestalt or the whole to create the chi, but in the yin-yang symbol represented by light and dark, 
within the light is dark, within the dark is light. I mention that because it's not as if one is one or the other, but when one is operating as one, as leader or follower, one should remain cognizant of the other part within self. And then again, as Ira has written, whether it's to support or to challenge or oppose, whether it's your works are on intelligent disobedience or not, we must maintain this yin-yang recognition, both in the minds of the designated leader and the members of the team. Can I add to what Neil has just said? He said something very important, which I'm not sure I made sufficient point of, which is that the world is not divided between leaders and followers. The yin and the yang are in each of us. At times we lead, at times we follow. And the work is understanding what is your role in a specific context. And if it's to lead, lead as well as you can. And if it's to follow, follow as well as you can. In other words, if you instead sort of see yourself competing with the leader, you're not following. Now, that doesn't mean you don't voice your own perspective. You absolutely do. But recognize the leader's role, the leader's responsibility, and what your role is in relation to them. As the two of you are talking, there are a couple things that come to mind. We often, when we are lower in the org chart, look up and think that person has all the power. Even the CEO is reporting to a board. So most people have bosses, even the people we don't think of having bosses. So we play a leader and follower role. I think to build on what both of you are talking about, even if I am the, quote, leader in a positional way, I may, in fact, follow the people who report to me on a lot of different axes because I'm not the person who has the expertise in that situation, nor should I be. Yes, that's very true. Neil particularly comes from a world of hierarchy. You know, you have uh, the medical hierarchy and you have the military hierarchy. And what that tends to do, doesn't necessarily do it, but it tends to distort the flow between the follower and the leader so that someone with a greater expertise below the positional leader may not be heard as readily as if there was a looser hierarchical culture. So I'd be very interested in hearing Neil's perspective on how hierarchy fits into the whole dynamic. Oh, I appreciate your point, and you're absolutely right, because I want to add something else that will blend into something, Maureen, you raised before about times of stress or difficulty. Not only do I work within these two important, otherwise hierarchical systems, military and health, but as I point out to our learners, they are both existential careers, so that the stress of success or failure, the concerns of success or failure, becomes particularly cogent to those individuals. Within that, though, when I'm listening to Ira now and thinking about this, it's really quite interesting to me. There's a point that we bring out that I believe is an important quote, but misunderstood. And that's a famous quote from Aristotle, who said, at least as we're told in English, he who cannot be a good follower cannot be a good leader. The misunderstanding, I think, is that many people have interpreted that and cited it as one must develop as a follower and then become this different thing leader. I don't think that's what Aristotle was saying. I think he's saying exactly what I was saying. It, one must be both and hold both, and then it depends on situation. 
One of the things I love about Iris' use of the adjective courageous follower is we again go to Aristotle, who said, courage is the first of human qualities. The first, because it is the quality that guarantees the others. So I really like the way we're discussing this now, but I completely agree with Ira. Many people seem to interpret that follower and leader is one role or another. That's why we've called our framework the leader-follower framework, not leader or follower, but we all must be both. And what was entertaining that our listeners won't have observed was when we all walked into the room, we all come in as positionally leaders, leaders in our fields, leaders in what we do, who's leading around the table and for which moment. And there really is an interesting interchange among peers and colleagues. Now, the two of you are more esteemed and accomplished in this area, and yet I'm leading the interview in some ways. That respectful give and take is really fun to watch because none of us have the ego that says, I've got to, you know, march in here and command the room. And that's something I believe of really effective leaders is the humility comes through and we can make space for other people in the room and to elevate them to their own best results. Yes, I agree. And there's a dance. And when we walked into this room, we were in that dance. Part of the appreciation of leading is, look, Maureen, you have made this conversation possible. You have created this platform. You have invested in the infrastructure to make this possible. So I am grateful to you for leading. And I believe that is part of a good follower role is gratitude, understanding that leaders carry a certain burden, pay a certain price, and that particularly if they are leading us in a pro-social direction, they deserve our, our, our support, not just passive support, but active support. So thank you for making this possible. I'd like to pick up on a certain illusion that Ira just made the example, or he talked about this as a dance, and I agree. But I also think of teams and the relationship between leaders and followers in a musical way. I'm a musician. I'm a drummer, primarily raised to be a jazz drummer. I think of teams like an excellent ensemble. So today we are participating in the Metcalf Trio. It's the Metcalf Trio because Maureen pulled it together. You've designated the theme. You've given us the theme of today. But recognizing that Ira and I each play a different instrument, have a different voice to contribute. When we play ensemble, we create beautiful music and a gestalt, which is greater than the sum of the parts. We also know when each of us needs to back off, when we work together, when we do duets and the different roles. That's particularly important to me as a drummer. I know when I can take over and be loud, when I set the tempo or stay in the middle in the rhythm, when I play softly, and when I don't play at all. And I think that relationship is the way I think about building, particularly in healthcare teams. I don't know, Ira, if that's I, consistent. I, I love it. It's, it's terrific. And I'm feeling, feeling that energy right here in the room, and we're naming it. That's the important piece is the naming it. Hmm. Well, that's right. You know, <laughs> talking about naming things, as we know, culturally, there is a antipathy to being called a follower. <laughs> and we've had to challenge that because... The reality is, if no one is following, then no one is leading. So, <laughs> so if we value leadership, we must value followership. And the recognition that follower is not 
a passive or even a uh, subordinate role is a role that we're playing within a context. And we need to play that role with as much commitment, engagement, strength, and uh, integrity as we would the leader role. And that's when you really get some, you know, wonderful results. I really like this other point that I was just raised in context. Now, what does that mean? Here, I take from my own intellectual grandfather, Kurt Lewin, who really argued in what was called social science field theory, is context is both physical, psychological, social. It's outside us, the environment in which we are, and it's inside us, whether we're angry, whether we're tired, whether we're happy. And then there's a psychosocial relationship, and particularly now out of really both appreciation for and respect for the International Leadership Association. Many of us recognize and we participate in this organization to try to gain that broader global perspective, various cultures, various situations, first, second, third world needs and perspectives. So I agree with context, which is we come back to what happens to followership under stress. And I think that's an important point. What happens to the followers' behavior and what happens to the followers' attitudes towards their leaders? So what Neil's just done is humanize leadership. It's not that leader is some conceptual role. Leader is an embodied human being who can be tired, who can be fatigued, who can be overly stressed, etc. That's why followers need to pay attention to what is the state of the leader. How can they help them to manage whatever that state is? And it will vary. It can vary day to day. It can vary hour to hour. It certainly varies over a career. You get a leader early in their career who wants to make their mark on the world. And, you know, later in their career, they don't want to rock the boat. They just want to be able to go out without any great faux pas. That's creating certain conditions that the follower needs to recognize. And then within the context of the mission, what you're trying to achieve to adjust the way they're following so that they are complementing where the leader is, rather than perhaps reinforcing an aspect of that leadership that may not be serving the current situation ideally. Early in my career, leader was the boss. They had the answers. They knew what to do. Especially post-COVID, we're really starting to seeing the leader as a human being who is hungry and tired. They've got kids they're trying to take care of while schools are closed. They've got any number of challenges, they're not just an abstract head, but they're a fully embodied human being who is having good days and bad, just like me, and they do enter the dance or the music ensemble. I don't think early in my career we saw leaders as human and in a dance. We saw them in above, in charge, that term subordinate. We had bosses and subordinates, and that defined the relationship. I think we are now stepping out of superior subordinate construct and really in many cases, not all, but in many cases seeing the importance of the yin and yang, the dance, the ensemble. But that's a significant mindset shift for many leaders who work very hard to become a boss 
and then nobody wants to be bossed. Yeah, and there's a generational piece to this, which Neil and I aren't terribly qualified to speak to, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, you know, if you work with uh, younger professionals, they're not buying into that old model, mm-hmm. and you know they know what they know, they value their voice, they want the seat at the table, they are more likely to speak up. And it's very important for the traditional leader to learn not to feel threatened by that, but instead, you know, to recognize there's a lot of energy in that, a lot of smarts, and a lot of innovation potentially in that, if that voice is welcomed. This makes me think of adding a couple of other layers from some classic psychological principles that are relevant to the discussion. One is what's referred to as the fundamental attribution error, and the other has to stress and dominant versus subordinate responses. The fundamental attribution error says that if I am judging my own behavior and performance and I do well, I tend to attribute the credit to myself. If I perform poorly, I tend to attribute my poor performance to external sources. Whereas when I'm viewing another person, I do exactly the opposite. If Ira succeeds, it's because Maureen pitched him an easy question or the situation was. (laughs) Whereas if he fails, it's something inherent to him. I'm mentioning this because the fundamental attribution error, being cognizant of it and recognizing that it is indeed an error, In the relationship between the leader and follower, it's important to understand that point and not allow it to dictate our interpretation. The other point that just came to mind as I listened to the two of you talk is the work of Robert Zients on stress and dominant responses. And that is under stress, psychological, physical, outsider, inside us, what's called our dominant responses come out, our well-learned or our natural or our simple. If our dominant response is to do something correctly, Add single-digit numbers, 1 plus 1, 2 plus 3, 1 plus 4. Not only will we do it correctly, but we will do it even better. Whereas if our dominant response is to get the wrong answer, do it incorrectly, multiply three-digit numbers, 234 times 576 in your head, and our dominant response is to do it incorrectly, then under stress, that becomes more exaggerated. I mention that because then the relationship of the leader follower, the relationship relevant to the team and mission, and the relationship under stress needs to ensure that the dominant responses are those that are the desirable, which gets to your point about intelligent disobedience. As you and I have discussed some, that intelligence interacts with is it ethical or moral or, or whatever cognitive decision-making that you believe the leader or follower should make. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Say you have a people lower down an organizational chart, and I'm saying to them, watch out for when your leader gets under excessive stress. And they can go, why? You know, they're getting paid the big bucks. Why am I watching out for them? And I said, because when they're under excessive stress, you're likely to get the worst leadership from them rather than the best. As Neil and I have already spoken about this, you know, a proper amount of stress will tend to bring out the best leadership in them. But excessive stress will tend to bring out the worst. So it's in your own self-interest. If you don't want to be, you know, led brutally or, you know, in some very unproductive way, you want to make sure your leader is feeling supported and their stress level comes down to that optimum level rather than the elevated level. 
So this is the managing up idea. Yes. That it's my job as a follower. Yes. That I've got to manage up as well as the leader has to manage down. Yes. I mean, obviously, leaders should be paying attention to the stress in the system. And and there's a healthy amount of stress. And, you know, this is well known that, you know, you put a certain amount of pressure on on the system and it tends to produce well. But the leader has to know when to pull back when there's excessive stress on the system and the followers. So again, we're back to the dance. Both parties need to have the proper amount of tension in the relationship. It's very interesting if you see dance partners, the best ones have a frame that holds the right amount of tension. When one is just very flabby, weak, or too forceful, you don't get the grace. You don't get the elegance. Ira has explained beautifully, again, from a psychological principle, the world I come from, is the classic what's called the Yerkes-Dodson relationship, which is the inverted U-shaped relationship between arousal or stress and performance. That is, is an upside-down U. So if one is not motivated at all, one is asleep, one is tired, one doesn't care, performance isn't very good. It takes arousal and stress and carry and motivation to hit that sweet spot. But again, as Ira says, if the stress is too great or the arousal is too great, anxieties, nervousness, or trauma and other situations around us, performance deteriorates. So we need to understand both in ourselves as well as as followers, as leaders, in our followers or our followers and leaders, where do we move? Do we need to calm down and focus on stress reduction techniques? Or we need to just jazz them up and give that motivational speech. And in many ways, it has to do with where one is in the relationships of the team. Early on with the team, again, the dominant response is not to do it well. Keep it calm during the learning. But this is why most world records in athletics are broken during Olympics, during global competitions and Super Bowls. When the elite athletes have gotten to the point, they're such well-oiled machines as individual athletes and as teams, that the stress actually has a positive effect. One can't have a conversation right now about leadership and followership, in my mind, without raising the question of what happened in Texas with the school shooting and what I assume is a very complex set of circumstances that most of us don't understand. But what we saw was a school shooting that went worse than it could have. I mean, there's no positive that happens out of these. But we saw followers following in a way that calls into the question, could it have gone differently if followers did less following and more leading? back to that dance and the jazz ensemble, as an external watching the news, I wish we would have seen followers not follow. Yes. And we're still learning what we need to learn from there. I have a few observations. I think to some degree what happened was when you look at the transcripts, the timeline, so many different police officers, law enforcement officers showed up that we got into, I think, the situation where, you know, the experiment where if one person walks by someone lying on the ground, they stop to take care of them. Whereas if you have a stream of people going by, everybody assumes somebody else is taking care of them. I think that may have been part of what happened. I was really stunned to see how many law enforcement officers were actually in the building within minutes, and they kept coming in. 
So that's one observation that I think needs examination and part of training. You must train people to respond to the exceptional event that doesn't happen every day, and they have to have a protocol, and they have to have a built-in neural memory on what to do in that situation. Now, you can't actually have a template for every situation. So therefore, the protocol needs to include what I'm calling intelligent disobedience, which is if you've received orders from a legitimate source, but the order is actually not responding to what you can see on the ground, the danger that you can see on the ground. And if you, and this is judgment call here, but if you can see that following that order is going to produce avoidable harm, then you have a ethical responsibility and hopefully that's embodied in the protocol so you don't have to be defending why did you disobey an order because it's already implicit in the protocol that if command is not seeing something that you can see and you believe you can avoid harm, that you act in intelligently in disobedience to that command. I agree that these points that Iroh's raising now and particularly his relatively new notion, or certainly the way you're phrasing it now, sir, is incredibly important to be aware of. But I also, again, the way I think as a professor, largely of psychology, the first point that he made was the classic work of Bib Latine on what's called the bystander intervention effect. And that has to do with shared versus dissipated responsibility. So there's this important point we haven't really gone into, and I realize in, now in my own writing, I need to address it more clearly, just listening and learning today from Ira, is that the follower not only has an important active role at certain times, but how is responsibility taken for outcome? The other point that I believe also we all need to be aware of, and when I say be aware of, not to leave it in the intellectual university or ivory tower, but to take these real principles of human behavior and apply them meaningfully to help in horrific situations such as Uvalde. And that is also under stress, not only does the behavior of the individuals change with dominant responses, but people's, at least in Western culture, preference for the style of their leader changes. And it has to do with a dissipation of responsibility. Under stress, Western civilization reports a preference for more directive and authoritarian leaders. When the building's on fire, you don't want to have consensus about how to get out. But it's also, you assume, I don't want responsibility for how to get out, which is a problem and needs to be understood if one's going to exercise what Ira points out, which is so critical. These are difficult points to make because we know that in a emergency situation, a firefighting situation, police uh, standoff like this, that having a central command is very important to coordinating all of the actors. We know that those actors won't be coordinated unless they've done drills and prepared for such eventualities. So I don't want to be seeming to say that we lightly disregard the command that we've been given. Nevertheless, there is that moment, and it's a almost instantaneous moment, where we have to make a judgment call, or the people we're entrusting to do this need to make a judgment call, and we pray that they make the right judgment. But even if they don't make the quite right judgment, if we want initiative in those situations, we cannot 
slam them for having tried. That's a critical piece. It's a difficult piece because people always want to assign accountability yeah. for an outcome. Oftentimes what happens is we don't know what the outcome would be. See, now we can say, oh my God, they should have intervened. But with the data they had, the perceptions they had, they weren't sure. Could they create more harm? But nevertheless, there was enough information when you go to the timeline that it would have been right protocol for someone. And eventually someone did, but it was far too late to say, this is an example of where I have to take responsibility for making a decision on the ground, executing it as safely as I can, but assuming a responsibility to try to prevent more harm. This is why I wanted to have the conversation because I realize it's incredibly nuanced. At the moment where people were in the building, the things going through their heads, everything from my child's in that room, how do I preserve their life, to anger. I can't imagine they weren't angry, they weren't scared, any range of emotions, and many of them trained differently with different sets of responses and responsibilities then to the command structure and that person or group of people having a series of directives for one to break with protocol also has big consequences, not just for self, but for the entire response team. When all the analysis has been done, there will be a better understanding of what went wrong with the communication. Because when I read the timeline, there was one student in room 112 who made four different calls to 911 saying there are people bleeding. And somehow that information was not getting into the system where it needed to. In all catastrophes, again, as I'm sure Neil knows, there's always a chain of errors. It's never just one error that ultimately results in the catastrophe. So from this conversation, though, we have the virtue of command structures and the liability of over-reliance on command structures as opposed to real-time data action and accountability. We also perhaps have a lesson, you know, in the last few years with COVID, I've often been asked what it was its impact on education. And as I've often said, faculty members at every level, from kindergarten through medical and law schools, professional, had to come into the 21st century with regard to using technology. And with that, it wasn't just giving lectures over Zoom or other platforms, but learning how to still engage the distance learner. Here, I hope that perhaps a lesson that's taken is the importance of preparing for situations in as similar a way as the situation and stress unfold. Now, of course, that doesn't mean, what do you mean we're going to go in and you know, shoot up a school? But this is where virtual reality various simulations, technology could be used while training various safety officers of all different sorts. But then as one goes to training, we're certainly doing this in military medicine. We're doing it a lot in two ways. We do real life simulations in which we have artists and makeup artists to create various wound structures and we create the stressors. But we're also using virtual reality and putting people in, if you will, three-dimensional green rooms to prepare them for uncertainty. So, for example, playing out the scenario, just the way Ira said, where there are no calls from the room of victims, where there's one call, where there's two, where there's three, where there's four. So that almost like preparing to be a chess master, do we practice every possible contingency? I would like to see technology and simulation used in the education and training 
I, I distinguish those because where training is to prepare for the known, education is to train for the unknown or unpredictable. Yeah. There's a checklist of a dozen things that you do that are protocol. But then there's like the 13th and 14th one, which is basically you need to know when the protocol is no longer applicable to the uniqueness of the situation. And that's where culture comes in, where the soldier on the ground, the law enforcement officer on the scene has to know that if they're doing this with good intent and reasonable judgment, that they can make that call and are expected to make that call to vary from the standard protocol. We're talking about law enforcement and military. Let's step it back into a corporate setting. Most of us don't deal with shooters, but we do run into situations where we have a leader who recommends something that in the moment, in that context, doesn't work. How do you translate it? When we step back to the corporate setting, time changes. You know, Neil and I have been talking, you know, in law enforcement or battlefield medicine, you have instantaneous decisions that can be tweaked. Now, usually with a corporate decision, you usually have days, maybe weeks, sometimes only hours. There's a different set of skills that are needed, which include political savvy, understanding, you know, where the different power centers are in the system, who might be the best to first create an alliance with, to bring this to the CEO. In some ways, it's a more complex skill set. And also, when there is less at risk, human life is not immediately at risk, there's a little bit more hesitancy to speak up against the authority structure. But when you are reaching a point of if the actions taken are serious ethical failures, legal violations, or even that can bust the company and lose all the investors their savings, you need to be willing to take that risk. And ideally, to be able to do it within the organization, not need to go out as a whistleblower because the culture is supporting you doing it within the organization. And yet we can all point to companies and Ron's and others that have lost people their life savings, and presumably people knew. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, there's pretty well-documented studies when people could have intervened and didn't intervene, and then the price they paid. In my book, Intelligent Disobedience, I take a couple of these uh, corporate case histories because it seemed safer from a career point of view to not blow the whistle internally even but ultimately, people went to jail because they didn't speak up when they should have, and they knew what was going on that was malfeasance. There's a certain calculation of risk. Sometimes you need to be able to take the short-term risk to avoid the long-term risk to the company, but also to your own career, your own well-being. These concepts, not only to corporate, but to families, to relationships, to friendships, et cetera. There's several points that, that are coming out that are so important to consider. What I think is important to underscore is the importance of a psychologically safe environment for the exchange of input. But the other is to create a culture and how one frames conflict. Conflict is not a dirty word. Conflict is a disagreement. We may have conflict about our opinions about our favorite color or our favorite food. But if conflict is framed, that is criticism input, as something of value, provided that it's expressed clearly, respectfully, without being ad hominem, and is for the good of consideration, then in the corporate, or I'm thinking family therapy or family groups or other interactions, rather than taking it as a personal attack, 
a consideration for no ideas, that it's an exchange of great respect. So how one frames that culture situation, I think is particularly important. I love that. What I observe works against that, particularly in public corporations, is the kind of incessant demand for quarterly numbers. There's a principle that says once a measurement, we need to measure things in a way are, but once it becomes a metric on which you're evaluated, your career is based, your stock goes up, your stock goes down, people start to game the numbers. And you wind up, you know, with all kinds of distorted behavior from the tyranny of having to make these numbers, which are in extreme contrast to the humanity that you are correctly saying would be our ideal way of interacting. So from your corporate listeners, Maureen, I I always alert people that it's particularly around the metrics that they need to pay attention to where are they getting undue pressure to do things that they know are not the right thing to do. It's such an important point I was making, and that makes me think about a fairly recent book by Simon Sinek, in which Sinek took the work of James Carse, well, it's called The Infinite Game, and Sinek basically argues that those corporations that have an infinite game approach, that is not a bottom-line immediate product, but is thinking in terms of its development, almost that, the journey, the zen, actually are the corporations that do much better. We were so impressed by this taking of the philosophy of cars, which is not as well known by Cynic. We recently published a paper on health and health care should be viewed as an infinite game so that one is working always to maintain health rather than I lose the weight and then I can regain it. I take the medication and I stop. But that is an infinite process to both engage in and to appreciate deeply. Can it be a both? In the real world, it needs to be. And this is where courage comes in. If you don't respect the culture of any group, and the culture in corporations is make your numbers. (laughs) Yet there are times when you can take a stand and say, look, we could do this. And it'll make us look good this quarter. But in terms of our reputational value, we are taking a huge risk. And it might be worth the hit to this quarter show a more accurate picture and then look for the deeper systemic issues that we need to address. And that would be rational management. It would be ethical management. It would be courageous following and courageous leading. And yet some CEOs, I'm sure, have lost their jobs over those decisions. Absolutely. And big amounts of money, personal income, when they're sent aside for making decisions that were long-term in orientation but missed quarterly numbers. Yes, and others have paid an equal price for overly gaming (laughs) the current organizational system. So... Look, life is full of risk. Life is full of choice. Life is full of decisions that uh, have ethical implications. And we come back to integrity and to living that way. And, you know, where the CEO is not living that way, that's where the courageous follower needs to be particularly mindful to not get uh, suborned into that way of managing. You know, especially as you talked about Enron is the case of people going to jail, and Enron is only one of many. 
where followers were aware to some level and went along for any number of reasons that in those cases I don't know, or makes me think of personal values. As a leader, as a follower, what value do I place on my own integrity? Yes. In some cases, that has a cost, a literal economic cost. Yes, that's right. You know, there is no guarantees that if one acts as a courageous follower or as a courageous leader, the short-term personal outcome is going to be one that you desire. Hopefully, you know, we live life for the long game, as Neil is saying, and can look back and say, you know, Frank Sinatra, I took my blows, <laughs> but I did it my way. Let's come to a close. Neil, what would you like our listeners to walk away with from this conversation? I believe the most important point that I hope listeners will start thinking about is that there is very little in life we can do alone. Uh -huh. We need other people. We need to realize that that relationship involved people playing a leading versus following role. And both types need to be optimized for performance within each of us and to optimize the success of the group, both in terms of performance or financial gain, as well as to optimize wellness and to develop a deep self-awareness of our own dominant responses as leaders, followers, and understand in others their dominant responses and how to reach that deep understanding, not in a corny sit-on-the-floor-pillows way, but to optimize performance. Thank you. Ira. Well, I certainly support what Neil said. And given that we are in the International Leadership Association space at the moment, I would add that I strongly advocate that all educators on leadership understand that there is an equal need to prepare the people in front of them for their followership roles, how to do both with strength, integrity, skill, and virtue. Beautiful. The images you used of the dance, of the yin-yang, of the orchestra, that each of us takes a role stepping forward and stepping back, whether it's in front of the performance microphone or behind the scenes that no one will ever see, helps our fellow person succeed in a way that brings out their best and allows us to meet the mission is absolutely crucial. So contact information. Let's start with you, Neil. People could Google my name, Neil Grunberg, and find me at the Uniform Services University uh, if they would ever like to email me or ask any questions. It is my honor to help and serve anyone I can. And you're published in pretty much every leadership journal ever. Leadership is new to me, but <laughs> I published about 50 papers and one book to date, and we have several more we're working on. I would direct people to my primary website, which is my name, irachaleff.com. I-R-A-C-H-A-L-E-2-F-S, like in Frank, dot com. And I so strongly advocate for your books, for anyone leading as well as anyone following, understanding that dance and what courage means, how to do it not blindly following, but smartly following, is really a nuanced exploration. Thank you. To our listeners, thank you for joining us and for using this information to innovate and evolve your leadership. Please remember to like and share today's episode. And a special thank you to the International Leadership Association, whose partnership made today's interview possible. <music>